Good morning. Woo. King forever. He is Jesus. What a Savior we worship. Uh, my name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And again, a special welcome to those of you who are guests with us. So thrilled uh, that you came to spend some of your morning um, with us. We're going to get right into it. We are in uh, a journey through the book of Ephesians. And in this journey, we are asking the simple and yet highly significant question, what is most true about you? What is the truest truth? What is the realest reality about you? Because as we've seen in the course of this series, what you believe to be most true about you has a profound way of determining your disposition, your decisions, your direction, and in so many ways, your life destination. If you don't like some of the emotional patterns that you're in, if you don't like some of the relational dysfunction you continue to find yourself in, if you don't like some of the struggles that continue to wrestle you down, I can almost assure you they all tie back to something that you believe to be true about you. In fact, what we're really, really asking in this series, in this study, is the question, what does God say is most true about us? Because that's what's most true about us. We can feel what we want. We can believe oftentimes lies from things that have been spoken over us in the past or what our experiences have told us. But the greatest question is, what does God say is true about us? What does he see and say when he looks at us? And in particular, when he looks at those of us who've put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, we've been together discovering some of the truths that God speaks over us. Because our desire is to ultimately believe what he says is most true about us and find that to be what influences and determines our disposition, our decisions, our direction, and ultimately our life destination. And we've been discovering some beautiful things. Last week, um, if you were here with us, we reveled in this incredible, glorious truth that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have always and will always be wanted. You have always and you will always be wanted. And what we saw was that God chose us before the foundations of the world. That there was this moment in eternity past when God looked and saw you and chose you by name. Not just to be like him, but adopted you into his family so you could be with him forever and ever and ever. Therefore, it can never be said about you, if you're a Christ follower, that you are unwanted. It can never be said about you that you are unwantable. And we said, listen, leaning into that truth has an amazing way 
of healing the deep hurts and wounds of rejection from people who've walked away or words that have been spoken over us. Believing that we are wanted and will always be wanted by God has this way of canceling all of our auditions for people's approval and people's acceptance, trying to compel and convince people desperately to turn their chairs and accept us when we believe and become convinced that God has chosen us. He has wanted us. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you and get online, missionpoint.net, and you can catch, watch, download, listen to um, that message free of charge. But this week, we want to continue uh, looking at, reveling in what God says is most true about us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, meet me in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And here's what it says. In him, him being Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You know, it's really interesting. As, um, as a pastor, one of the experiences I've had more times than I can possibly remember is moments where people will come to see me, to talk, to process, because life has become really unbearable for them. They are just struggling in places of torment, and they want to process. And what I have found, realized, is usually when people get to that place, it it springs out of one of two things. It's either because they are experiencing some level of regret or they're experiencing some version of resignation. Regret in the sense that they have done something. They've done something in their past, something that they consider so vile that they just cannot get past it. It haunts them. It torments them. They can't possibly believe that there is life beyond this dark thing that they have done, regret. Or on the other hand, it'll be something tied to resignation. And by resignation, I mean it's this idea that there is this struggle, this spiritual kryptonite, this area of sin in their lives that they just cannot seem to outrun or overcome. And they'll feel like they keep failing in this way over and over and over again. But in both of these cases, what tends to happen is that yields to shame, this belief that something is severely broken and messed up about me. In fact, I am broken and messed up. And it will often lead to secrecy, where you don't understand how dark and deplorable thing I did was. You don't understand how dark and deplorable the place I continue to struggle is, and so I've got to hide it from everybody around me. And it will inevitably start to lead to a spiraling pattern in life. And what you start to see is for many of these people, it will start to 
sabotage and mess with their relationships with other people. And you can understand that when you believe that you're hauling around some failure from the past that not even you can get past, what would people do with you if they knew what you did? And so you start to hide sections and portions of, of your life. If people knew the kinds of things you're struggling with and you're sitting in here singing, he is Jesus, what would they do with you? And you start to keep people at a distance. You start to hide what you notice in those situations is that oftentimes growth spiritually is somewhat stalled because so severe is that sin from the past and so severe is that struggle in the present that God couldn't possibly want anything to do with me. So I'm going to kind of hide until I've got this whole thing figured out. And we end up keeping a distance from God. Ministry ends up being put on the sidelines because there's no way God can use a person who's done that and there's no way God can use a person who's doing that. I mean, I would share the gospel. I mean, I will share the gospel once I get past these things. And so we sit in these places where ministry is stifled. And so powerful is the word Paul speaks to the church in Ephesians 1 verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption redemption if you are a follower of Jesus Christ you have been redeemed and so this morning we want to lean in and press in and get some sense of what this idea means and I just want to warn you ahead of time, this may feel at times like a lecture, like a history lesson, but that's just our desire to get a sense of the background of the word Paul uses so we can more fully appreciate its beauty. But you all look like a studious group anyway, so I think we should be good. We want to process this beautiful truth that God has called us redeemed, redeemed, redemption, such a, a graphic word Paul chooses to use. Um, in fact, I've wondered if Paul wrote this letter in our modern day context, in our current culture, would he have used a word so graphic? And I'm like, yeah, of course he would. Paul wasn't PC. He would have said it nonetheless. But the point is this was such a loaded word and not loaded in its meaning as much as it's loaded in its insinuation, it's in, in its implication, which we are going to get a sense of here in a few moments, redemption, redeemed. Uh, the word redeemed centers around this word, this idea, the idea of ransom. Ransom. In fact, when the word is used here in this passage, redemption literally means to pay the demanded ransom for freedom. To pay the demanded ransom for freedom. Now, the idea of uh, a ransom paid is not foreign to us. I mean, we've watched enough movies and we've seen enough news headlines to understand the concept of ransom. And we've seen situations in which uh, a group will forcefully um, kidnap a victim and then hold them hostage, demanding that a ransom, a payment, oftentimes a steep payment be paid for the freedom of that victim, of that loved one. In fact, some of you might have seen recently come across your, your newsfeed the sad story of um, Ali Landry, 1996 Miss USA. For those of you who know who she is, 
But apparently, not too long ago, her brother and her dad were kidnapped by a, a Mexican cartel. And they demanded that Ali Landry's family pay them an astronomical ransom for the freedom of brother and dad. And so the family went ahead and paid this ransom. And tragically, the brother and dad were killed anyway. Really sad story. But for most of us, when we think about ransom and a ransom paid, that's kind of the picture that springs to mind. Kidnappers who are demanding an astronomical price if they're going to release the hostage, if they're going to release the victim that they've taken captive. They are demanding a ransom be paid for the redemption of the hostage. But... When Paul uses the word redemption and he leans into this concept of ransom, he's not thinking, and the Ephesians would not have been thinking of um, a hostage situation the way we would think of a hostage situation. In fact, hostage situations were very rare in the first century Roman culture. No, when Paul used the word redemption, When he used this idea of ransom, the picture that would have come to mind would not have been one of a hostage. It would have been one of a slave. Loaded implication in this really graphic word. Redemption was a word used to describe a ransom or a price paid for the freedom for the emancipation of a slave from his master. That's what the Ephesians would have thought, and the idea of slavery would have been immensely familiar to them. In fact, it is thought that in the first century Roman culture, one in three people were slaves, which I find really fascinating. Because obviously one in three people didn't realize that one in three people were slaves. Otherwise, a mass revolt would have been staged. But people didn't always know this. But it was a major means of supplying the workforce in the Roman Empire. It was an incredible means of supplying the military workforce for the Roman Empire. Empire. Slaves were a very well-known matter of national economy and national security. Now, just so we understand some of the way uh, slavery um, worked, you could become a slave in the Roman Empire by a variety of means. Um, Jack Sparrow and them could get you. I mean, literally, uh, people were often captured while they were sailing by vigilante pirates who would then sell them to the Roman Empire as slaves. One minute, it's a leisure cruise. Next minute, slave ship. And that was the story of a number of people in that context. The Roman Empire was notorious for going to war against other nations. Oftentimes, they would defeat that nation, and they would keep the cream of the conquered crop, and they would bring some of their best and their brightest as slaves to Rome. And so many of the slaves were prisoners of war. Sometimes you became a slave, and the only crime you committed was being a foreigner. 
you might come in as a refugee to Rome looking to make a better life for you and your family. The problem with that is that you were denied a certain level of rights which made you incredibly vulnerable to be taken in as a slave by the Romans, which happened way too often. In some really tragic cases, people became slaves because the family was so poor and they felt like they were on the verge of Death, And so a dad would make what he felt was his only decision, and he would sell a number of his kids into slavery for the greater good of his family, to keep the rest of the family alive. But most people in the Roman Empire were slaves by inheritance. If your parents were slaves... You were slaves. The whole family was enslaved, and everyone born into that family was therefore born a slave. Now, slavery in the first century Roman culture wasn't created um, equal. Among slaves, there were tiers. There were ranks of slaves, two in particular. There was a higher class of slaves, and these would be made up by the highly educated or the highly skillful. Those slaves were often actually given pretty cushy gigs as teachers or as accountants. Um, in many cases, they became supervisors of other slaves. Not a bad deal in terms of slavery. They were treated a little bit better, but the reality is that was a really small and rare group of slaves. When they would have thought of ransom and redemption and slavery, the Ephesians would have thought of a much vaster group of people who belonged to a second category, a second class of slaves. It's a class that lived such a brutal life that most of them didn't survive very long. Um, the, these were slaves who were, would make up the general labor force in Rome. Um, and they would do a variety of different things. Typically, they would do either the menial or, or the absolutely grotesque tasks that nobody would ever volunteer to do. Many of these slaves would work on farms or they would work in the mines or they would work on construction sites. Um, they would work um, in factories or, or whatever the case would be. Uh, they were used to build roads. They were used to build the impressive Roman structures that we still see standing um, from just passed because, as you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. But I don't know if you knew this, but Rome wasn't built by Romans. It was built by the bloody hands of the slaves. Other slaves existed for the entertainment of the elite in Rome. But you knew this. You've seen the movies. Where there were slaves who existed and they were thrown into these massive arenas to fight each other or to fight deadly beasts, totally for the amusement of the wealthy higher class. They would die and bleed. In fact, it's thought that over 400,000 people died in the Colosseum in Rome, and most of them slaves who were forced to fight for the entertainment of the Roman masses. For others, they existed for a different kind of entertainment, the most violating kind of entertainment in which they were handed over to the highest paying customer and were forced to do the unthinkable. 
Slavery was this brutal reality for the majority of people in the Roman Empire, which is the picture that would have sprung to mind for the Ephesians. And again, they ended up not living very long. It was a brutal existence, and they were treated brutally, and no wonder. In the Roman Empire, a slave was not legally considered human. They had no legal rights. They couldn't own property. They couldn't vote. They couldn't, by any stretch of the imagination, testify in a court of law. And because you had no rights, your owner had every right to abuse you whatever way he wanted to. And oftentimes, he could murder you in a public scene And there would be no recourse because you were considered a piece of property. You were considered a mere thing that was owned by this man. And what were you going to do? You were a slave. You had no choice. You were captive. You were owned. You were a piece of property. And so when the master said, hey, report for duty, guess what you had to do? You had to run and report where he said, when he said, and do what he said, however long he said. And so if he said, hey, you show up to the farm, you would show up to the farm and you would work countless hours, get a quick nap, and then start the process again. If he said, hey, I want you in the deepest places of the darkest minds, working for days and days and days, that's what you would do. You had no choice. You were a slave. You weren't even a person. You are a thing, a piece of property. If he said, go to my farm and spend however long, if he said whatever he said you had to do, if he said, go into the arena and fight your family members or go into the arena and fight this deadly creature, you had to do it. You were a slave. You had no option, no choice. It was a brutal existence. But in the darkness that was Roman slavery, there was the faintest of lights. There was the tiniest glimmer of hope for a slave. It was a concept known as manumission or emancipation or redemption. Redemption. There was the faintest of possibilities that a slave could buy his freedom from his master. And so in rare situations, a master would say to a slave, After you earn a certain amount of years of work, you accumulate enough currency to be able to come to me and buy your freedom. And so he might say, hey, your 25 years have earned you your freedom. And in that rare moment, the master would say to this slave, you are now free to go. You have paid the ransom. You are redeemed by virtue of your work. And he would let this guy go. Um, the reality, though, is in most of those situations, the slave was just too old or too weak to be of any value to his master. And so his master would say, hey, you're free to go. So he could upgrade to the newer 6S version of the slave because they were just pieces of property. 
They were just things. In some situations, um, a master would free his slave, but he would free his slave with some claws, like claws. He would tell him, hey, you've earned your freedom. You're free to go, but here's the catch. You have to continue to pay me a certain portion of everything you make for the rest of your life. What's a slave going to do? It was a brutal transaction. And many slaves would say, well, I'd rather be 80% free than not free at all. And so they would take the master up on this offer. But you know what the majority of redemption was in that day? It was this motivating mirage. It was a lie. It was this hope falsely dangled in front of the slave to keep him motivated to work and to keep him motivated away from any thoughts of revolt. Because if the master says, if you work hard for me, boy, I'll set you free. What do you think the slave is going to do? Work till he bleeds. And what do you think he's going to do to his buddies who are saying, hey, we should revolt. There's one in three of us. Mm-mm. Master says, I'm so close to getting my freedom. I'm so close to manumission. I'm so close to redemption. And this hope was falsely dangled in front of slaves until they died working hard with a mirage of manumission. Never, ever experienced. When the Ephesians would have heard the word redemption, they would have thought of those rare stories, though, that they had heard Rumors about in which a slave would labor hard enough and long enough to accumulate just enough currency to afford to to pay the ransom for his own freedom. They would have imagined that moment in those rare occasions when that ransom was handed over in essence by the slave and his freedom was handed back. That moment when chains were undone, and his family was released, and he walked, empty-handed, of course, because he had no property, into the distance, free at last. Redemption. Would have conjured up an emotionally moving, stirring, graphic picture redemption. But... Paul isn't just using this word and this concept to remind them of the first century cultural practices of slavery. Paul is borrowing some cultural imagery so he can remind the church of a spiritual reality. It's amazing. Look again at verse 7 in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, in him, Jesus, we have Redemption. We have manumission. We have been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. The reason Paul brings this whole ransom picture up to the church is because he wants them to be convinced if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are by definition a slave who's been set free. That's the truest truth. About you. You are the slave whose ransom has been fully paid and now you are fully free to go. You have been redeemed. And here's how Paul paints this picture in a different passage Romans chapter 6. We'll have this up on the screen so you can see what it says. It says, 
when you were slaves to sin. You were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you were a spiritual slave. And if you thought slavery in first century Rome was brutal, you have clearly not understood what slavery to sin is like. And what the Bible tells us is that apart from Jesus Christ, we were all slaves to sin. If you are apart from Jesus Christ this morning, you are a slave to a master called sin. And here's the story. God created the world. And after he created the world, he created us. And because he created us, he had ownership rights over us. And with his ownership rights, God said, hey, I want you he got to tell us what to do. I want you to work with me, and I want you to work for me, and I want you to do the kind of work that will be most satisfying to your souls. Work with me. Work for me. We looked at ourselves, and we said, yeah, we don't have chains. I reckon we just revolt and do our own thing and we stage this rebellion away from our creator, our original owner. And we went and did our own thing considering ourselves free. But here's the problem. That was never an option. We were either going to work with God and for God or we were going to sell ourselves as slaves to Sin, which means when we rebelled against God, whenever we sinned against God, we sell ourselves to sin as its slaves. And that's what Paul says is true about everybody apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Whether we realize it or not, we were held hostage. In fact, we were owned by the slave master called sin. We were part of sin's labor force. And you know this is true. When sin called, you better come running and report for duty. If sin says you report to that dark mind of self-harm or pornography, you could say no for a little while, but you were a slave. You had no choice. Eventually, you would have to give in. When sin says report to that arena, to the Colosseum, and feud with your family, and hey, fight with whoever it is, and hold on to bitterness, you did it because you were a slave and you couldn't say no. When sin said, hey, here's the deal, you need to go to the farm and you need to sow into places of regret and you need to sow into places of destruction, you would do it. You had no choice, you were a slave. You were a piece of property bossed around by the slave master called Sin. And Sin was a brutal slave master. That every desire to see us destroyed, every desire to see us harmed, James says every desire to see us dead. But the whole time, which is the funniest thing, it 
dangled this false hope in front of us, telling us, if you just take one more hit, if you just mess around one more time, this next time will bring you happiness, and we continue to move forward, because what else are you going to do? It knows you might stage a mutiny and run to Jesus, so it dangles the hope of eventual happiness, and we keep doing the same thing. That's why you do things you know are hurting you, and you can't stop. Paul says slaves to sin, part of its labor force, with a likelihood of a shortened life. I feel like there's a spider web in front here. Can anyone see this? That's like, that's elaborate. Spider web trying to enslave me. Watch out for me here, people. Todd, you got my back. If anything goes down here, man, I don't do spiders at all, man. Arachna, what? Okay. That's, I'm serious. This is really freaking me out. You guys can see this, right? Because if you can't see this, I just look like a strange human being. You're obviously a slave to something, buddy, (laughs) up there. All right, I think we're in the clear now, but wow, that was scary. All right, slaves to fear, I mean slaves to sin. Uh, But the reality is you know this. I mean, if you ever can't say no to something, it means you're a slave to it. And many of us this morning can say, you know, that's true about me. It wasn't just true away from me. It still is true in so many ways. But the Bible tells us that our situation is much more dire than that. Believe it or not, the worst of the situation was not just that we were slaves to sin. It wasn't just that we were owned by the slave master called sin. It's worse than that. Because we sold ourselves to slavery, We now owed God a death debt that we could never repay. When we revolted from our original creator, our original owner, that was never going to happen without consequence. That's what uh, the Apostle Paul means. Did you see that in Romans chapter 6 verse 23? He says, the wages of sin is eternal death, always. We are doubly hosed. Not only am I owned by sin, but now I owe God a debt I can never repay. That is a dire version of slavery to be living in. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 again. And here's what it says. It says, in him, Jesus, we, that's those of us who believed in Jesus, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Paul wants once again the church to be absolutely mesmerized by this truth. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free from slavery to sin. You are a slave no more because of Jesus Christ. We sold ourselves into slavery to sin, and in so doing, you owed God an eternal debt we could never repay because the ransom for our redemption was eternal death. And the only way we could pay it was by dying forever and ever. And it has no end because so great is our sin against a holy God. Which means if we worked forever and did good forever, we would never be able to accumulate enough currency to bring to God and say, can we purchase our freedom? He would say, it's not enough. We were in a messed up situation. Nothing we could do to gain our own freedom. And what Paul is telling us is Jesus says, I know. I will buy them back. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They rebelled against you and sold themselves into slavery and now you are going to pay the price to get them back to you? I'm going to buy them back. That's the beauty of the, the, the gospel. It's a powerful thing. I will pay the ransom price for their freedom, for their redemption. But Jesus, you realize the ransom being asked is death. It's eternal death. I know that. And so I'm going to pay for their freedom, their redemption with my own blood. And on the cross, Jesus, who with a perfect life had accumulated enough currency to be able to pay God for the redemption of anybody who would trust in him, said to God, I'll buy her back and I'll buy him back. Thank you very much. And whoever puts their faith in me, I will purchase them back out of slavery into freedom. And I will purchase God this debt they owe you. I'll pay for it so they can be fully and freely redeemed. And that's what Paul is saying is true about anyone who believes in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds this powerful phrase um, at the end of the verse. Look again. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And he adds this phrase, the forgiveness of Sin. This is so beautiful. That's just so we would understand how comprehensive the ransom payment of Jesus is. That's just another way of saying he didn't only save you from the shackles of sin, but he fully paid the debt you owed God. So not only do you have no more chains, but you have no more condemnation from God. Here's the point, and we'll put this up here on the screen. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no longer owned by any sin, and you no longer owe for any sin. I'm telling you, if you believe that, it will transform your world. Sin can no longer tell you what to do. That's crazy, but it's powerful. God is no longer holding anything against you. That's crazy because of Jesus' ransom payment for our redemption. But that is powerful. 
The question, church, is do you believe that? Do you live like this is true? Because that's what I believe the Lord wants to invite us into. He has a church who is so bent on living like we are still slaves. And Paul screams, you've been set free. You've been forgiven. When he died for you, he set you free from slavery. And he forgave you of every sin you had ever committed. You are redeemed. Here's what this means. A couple of quick things as we wrap. Number one, please hear me. If if Jesus paid the ransom for your redemption, then you don't have to. Let me say that again. Put it up here. If, If Jesus paid the ransom, you don't have to. That's what the word in this passage, grace, means. Unlike uh, the Roman version of slavery, God didn't require that you do a bunch of work to earn enough currency to finally pay for your own emancipation. Jesus did all the work and earned all the currency, and he footed the bill for your freedom. You simply need to say, yes, please, and walk out of there. Do you realize how many of us are still laboring and working to get God to finally forgive us of the sins we've committed? We are still, in fact, that's why many of us come to church and we do our devotions because we're trying to earn enough currency. And God is saying it's been paid. The ransom has been taken care of. Live a little. That's why, by the way, some of us still won't come to God because we feel like I'm too messy, I'm too messed up when I fixed myself, meaning when I've done enough good things, then I'll come to him. That's why some of us, our growth is stifled because I can't talk to God anymore. I've done enough messy things even since I've been a believer and I don't believe that that stuff is covered and so I'm just working my way back. And redemption says, no, 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 the ransom has been paid in full. In fact, the word he uses is grace has been lavished. Jesus didn't just pay for your sin and pay for your freedom. He overpaid. That's what lavish means. You will never be able to out-sin his grace. That's not an invitation to, that's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to live, an invitation to Believe. The Lord wants some of us to stop working and just receive his forgiveness that he offers. A second thing, if God has set you free, guess what? You are free. The thing about an emancipated slave was that he was as free as he realized himself to be. Because removing the chains from him was not the same thing as removing him from the chains. It is amazing how many of us still live like we have to report to duty when sin calls. You feel it. Sin tempts you and it's like, I've got, I can't not say yes. I've got to report. It calls me, hey, it's midnight. It's time for you to report to the mind of pornography. What am I going to do? I have to go. I have to report. Hey, it's time for me to head back to the farm place of weed or whatever. 
but we go because we feel like I have no choice. I'm a slave. It's amazing how many of us still live like we are shackled, like we are slaves, like there's a master who can tell us what to do. Listen, when temptation tells you you have to, you can tell it, make me. It's a lie. Anything that tells you as a believer you have to do it, it's a lie. If you've been set free, then you are really free. It will change the way you struggle when you believe you don't have to report for duty. There's no fine print. There's no afterpayment. Just freedom. What areas of your life need that? Another thing, if God has forgiven you, you are forgiven. No one can ever tell you you are not forgiven for something you've done. No one can ever make you feel guilty for sin that Jesus says, I paid for that. The abortion, I paid for that. The divorce, I paid for all the mess that was involved in that. The adultery, I paid for that. All the self-mutilation, I paid for that. It's taken care of. It's amazing how many times we will veto God. We'll almost rebel against him by saying, I appreciate that you forgive me, but I refuse to forgive myself. Who are you? What right do you have? If he says you're forgiven, church, you're forgiven. Sin has let you go. God has let you go. Come on, Elsa. Yeah, you know where I'm going. If he's forgiven you, you are forgiven. And for some of us, we need to dance in the freedom, maybe afresh, of things that we're still living, like God is holding over our head. It's like, it's paid for. Stop punishing yourself for what Jesus Christ has already been punished for. You're redeemed. You are forgiven. And if God forgives you, he meant to. I love the last phrase here in Ephesians 1.8. It says, with all wisdom and understanding. (laughs) I love that. See, wisdom and understanding is really awesome. Because anytime you're tempted to think, okay, maybe, maybe God was having a moment. He was having an emotional moment. He was like on a forgiveness streak. And then he woke up one day and realized, like, oh my goodness, what have I done? There is no redeemer's remorse. Wisdom and understanding means God knew what he was getting himself into when he got you. He knew what you had done. He knew what you would do. He knew what you were continuing to struggle with. And he redeemed you still. Please know he made no mistake in redeeming and forgiving you. He did it on purpose. Church, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are redeemed. You're not waiting. We are waiting for the ultimate redemption, but you have been set free. You have been forgiven. The question is, will you believe it and begin to live like it? Man, put your hand up if you know that we've gone over. Good. Um, that's, <laughs> thank you. The tech team's like, we've been here since um, 5 a.m. this morning. Listen, we want to just sing. If you have to head out and grab your kids, please do that. But we want to close our time and just reveling in that truth as Jason and the team leads us in song. Listen, 
either Christ will pay your ransom or you will have to pay it. And for some of you, you've never come to him and said, will you please take my chains? Will you please pay for my freedom? Will you please give me forgiveness? And you're still carrying your own sin. The wages of sin is death. Either Jesus will take the death or you will take the death, but you don't have to. That's what Romans 6.23 means. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. No one has to walk out of here carrying sin that Jesus will gladly carry for you if you just say, take it. You're redeemed. Let's stand. Let's sing.